This is the Monday, December 14th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and you're listening to The History Author Show. Thank you so much for tuning in to our iHeartRadio channel, which you can find by downloading the smartphone app or using the radio in many new model cars, or for catching us on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, or your favorite media outlet. We also thank you for clicking through the Amazon banner on our site when you make a purchase online. It's an easy way to support the show. As football season hits its stride, Nothing's better than a cold one. Add some history and friends into the mix, and you have the perfect day. In today's episode, we give you that hat trick of favorite things at McGillan's Old Ale House in Philadelphia. Ma and Pa McGillan opened the door to their home 155 years ago, when Abraham Lincoln won the presidency and just after the Liberty Bell cracked. Tucked away in an alley, as if hiding from the eyes of old father time, McGillan's indoors. Originally called the Bell in Hand, McGillan's has survived wars, economic panics, challenges from upstart chain restaurants, and, shiver with me, dear friends, prohibition. (laughs) Today, thanks to the repeal of the 21st Amendment, McGillan's can legally serve a wide selection of regional microbrews as well as modern drinks. And as an aside, Can you imagine the look on old Pa McGillan's face if you walked in there and asked him to mix you a watermelon martini? In a century and a half, only two families have held the keys to McGillan's Old Ale House. The current owners are Mary Ellen and Chris Mullen Sr. and their son, Christopher Jr. I caught up with Christopher the Elder for a pint recently and immediately felt at home in the past. Visit McGillan's.com to do some serious time traveling with dozens of news articles. You can also follow the tavern at McGillan's on Twitter or like it at Facebook.com slash McGillan's. Now, pull up a stool and we'll draw you a pint. It's an early morning in the city of brotherly love, 1860s style. I'm sitting in the longest continuously operated tavern in Philadelphia and the fifth oldest in America. Isn't that right? That's right. Across from me, as you just heard, is Chris Mullen Sr., who is kind enough to wake up pretty early, as usual, in the restaurant business. He's here hours before really your day never ends, does it? 24-7. This is, of course, America's first capital city, so it's an honor to be in the oldest tavern. Tavern's playing such an important part in the revolution in a city like this, bustling with ghosts of the past. And here I'm sitting today able to feel like I'm drinking a pint with some of them. So thank you very much, Chris, for welcoming us into what feels like your home here. 
It's my pleasure. Welcome. I love history. <laughs> well, I can tell because you've done so much to preserve it here. Speaking of your home, this started out as a home, didn't it? The yes. McGillans lived upstairs. Yes. If you look over my shoulder, directly behind me is one of the three buildings that comprises McGillans. There's, even to this day, there's three distinct pieces of real estate. So the building where we're sitting right now, Dean, is uh, where McGillan and his wife, Catherine, his second wife, Catherine, raised 13 children. And then the middle, over your left-hand side, is the middle part of the bar, and that's where the original bar was, very tiny. And then the other piece of real estate was an oyster house. And McGillan was a very industrious, hardworking Irishman, bought the three properties and uh, wanted to make one larger room, which you see right now. Oyster House, one thing it made me think when you talk about, since 1860, this huge amount of construction and all the changes, are there any of the oyster shells incorporated anywhere, like in the foundation? Do you ever come across things like that when you renovate or repair? We have not. Again, it's been several renovations, several uh, constructions, and we have never seen the oyster shells. But I can guarantee you, if we dug deep enough, there'd probably be some over that other property. People may not be aware of it, but the Delaware Bay, the Delaware River, Bay was one of the largest oyster beds in the country. So oysters were a big part of colonial America. One reason when they had the Erie Canal from New York and all along New Jersey and in Philadelphia, they were able to ship those all over. That was huge business. So I could see it being an oyster house and you could still get some great oysters around here. Right? Yes, we have several good oyster houses. Just how did you get to be in this position of owning this great old American tavern? Because this is an amazing story. There's such a direct connection between you and the McGillans. Well, there is. Um, well, first of all, I grew up in the business. My father was a chef. My first job that I was paid for was I was 10 years old. My father was catering a, an Irish wedding for 500 people. I dished up 500 dishes, monkey dishes, if anybody's been in the restaurant business, they know what that is, of peas. So my personal narrative is I've always been in this business. I did graduate from college and graduate school and worked outside of the business briefly. But I've always been in it. And then uh, my wife and I met on Cape Cod, gave her a ride on my motorcycle. We fell in love. And lo and behold, her father's in the business. So we got married and started raising a family, worked outside the business, opened two businesses, and then came here. Her father and uncle were older, wanted to retire, and we made him an offer, and we bought the place. So They were the owners. They were the owners. Her father and uncle. Her father yeah. and uncle. And that was the brief period of non-Irish ownership, was yes. it? They were Polish. Uh, yeah, they were. They had it from 1958 to 1993. So there's 35 years of two po sons of Polish immigrants running the bar. Part of the American narrative: first the Irish immigrant, then the Polish sons of Polish immigrants. They ran it very successfully for 35 years until it was time for them to retire. One was very, very ill ultimately succumbed to the illness, and the other was getting older, didn't want to do it by himself, and we bought it from them after owning two other bars before this. And they bought it from the daughter? From, from the McGillan, yeah, Mercedes Hooper. And uh, her son, Dr. William Hooper, who I had the privilege of meeting, uh, was overseeing it, but he obviously, as a doctor, didn't want to be involved in day-to-day -day business. I first discovered McGillan's by accident. I just was on my way to New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina washed out bachelor party plans, and we scrambled to find a place to go. And we said, well, we'll go to Philadelphia and then we'll take a limo, go to Atlantic City. And I was the best man. So I wanted to show my friend a good time. And we just turned down this alley here. You wouldn't expect to find anything. And you find this incredible place. It was really <laughs> like a Twilight Zone and one of the more upbeat Twilight Zones of Rod Serling, where you sort of turn and you you really felt transported into the past. Everybody was so nice. It was 
early in the day on a weekend. This is a Monday that we're recording this at 11. And everybody was so welcome, even though it was clearly early in the day for them. And I felt that you really preserved that family feeling that we just talked about. You can almost hear the 13 children still running around. This is a place with a lot of energy here, even though it's just your staff. Everybody's very much getting ready to deliver this experience. You just passed a Sunday night. It was a bye week for the Eagles, but this is very alive for a usual sports Sunday, wouldn't it be, for football? Yeah, it was great. This is a great weekend. Notre Dame came to town to play our home team favorite, hometown favorite, Temple University. And we get a lot of Temple kids come in here and alumni. The weekend was great for football, even though the Eagles were out of town. We're going to buy. You can get a Irish bar in a box these days. It's literally what they call it. And yet this is so genuine. There's a big smile on your face right now, just when I say about this is the real thing. And I feel People may not know that because they go to a lot of these places where you buy the Guinness signs in bulk and it's in an airport or even Ireland itself. I often say that going to Ireland when I was young in college, Rutgers went there for the Emmerdog Classic. And I said it was really like going to a foreign place. That was 1989. When I was younger than that, going to Florida was like going to another country. Now, unfortunately, a lot of going to Ireland is like going to Florida. Everything's very homogenized. We have the Internet. This is really a museum where you eat and enjoy a pint. No pint over $5. Is that right? Pretty much, yes. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I heard your son say that, and I said, wow. It's yeah. also economical. You can have history and economical. But describe some of the items as you started to do there. I, I just want to interject one thing about those Irish pubs in a box. When you were talking about the spirit, even though we're not open, our staff has it, and I have it, my wife has it, my son has it. And you just can't buy that and ship it somewhere. You know, you got to have soul. And we feel, even though we're, we try to market ourselves as a historic Philadelphia tavern, we are definitely an Irish pub, and we feel we have Irish soul in the place. Um, but getting back to your question, I don't want to sound like a politician. No, no, that's <laughs> and the not answering a question. This is the day no, all, <laughs> I always laugh at how politicians will be asked a question. And they somehow don't come near to answering it, and then they don't understand why the interviewer is annoyed. <laughs> but anyway, so we one of the things that we've been doing since we've been here, first of all, there's a lot of interesting things in the building when we bought the place. We discovered a lot of them because a lot of things have been covered over with mirrors and, you know, and so we just uncovered a lot of things. But we've been fortunate enough to receive gifts from people. For example, the John Wanamaker Department Store uh, was a beloved institution in Philadelphia. We got one of their signs on the wall. Uh, we have a gimbal sign. The department store's signs are integral because Philadelphia was a banking center and a retail center. And it's nice to preserve those historic markers, so to speak, so people can come down and relive their days as children you know, and young people. Another, not one item, but another feature, I guess you'd say, is you have the liquor licenses or many liquor licenses. Tell us about those. Yes, we have licenses. People will say, oh, you're not the oldest bar in Philadelphia. You have City Tavern or something like that. And I'm like, oh, no, go look in their walls and see if they have a license. And we have licenses from as early as 1870. And they're hanging over a back bar. uh, And it proves that this place was indeed a bar here since 18, at least 1860 that we can document with documents here in the building but we know it was from 1860 also there over the back bar there's a hand carved wooden sign the place originally was called the bell and hand tavern so people used to come and say we're going to Paz, we're going to mcgillan's we're going to see bill mcgillan's so he said i'll change it to mcgillan's old ale house some of the names that i wrote down here of 
famous people. And of course, being a person who lives in the past, I chose some older people, but it's a long, long list. W.C. Fields, Ethel Merman, Vincent Price, the Marx Brothers, the list of visitors, it really reads like a history book in itself. But the march didn't stop with the talkies, so rattle off some of the modern names who visit your house. Uh, Will Farrell's been in here, and uh, a lot of the, the Philadelphia sports figures have been in here. Um, one name that you didn't list on there is the Barrymores, John and Ethel. They're Philadelphians, and most people are familiar with Drew Barrymore. Chris Berman from ESPN. Just in general, a lot of high-profile rock and roll stars who from the past especially from for example the, the singers from yes will come in here the ritz Carlton's is around the corner and they're kind enough to send the folks over they they say we just want a pint of beer where can you send us we don't want a fancy place and they send them here to us it's perfect because it's kind of hidden you could see ethel barrymore slipping in here and i find that people in new york city anyway sometimes you like to go out you want to be recognized maybe but not bothered and you want to have a place where you can go and as you said, enjoy yourself, wind down. Whether you're famous or not famous, to have a place you can come in a strange city that's one you're not really familiar with, as I'm not a Philadelphian, to walk in and feel that feeling when you're traveling of, ah, now I'm relaxed. I'm looking at, at, at happy faces. I'm looking at friendly faces. And I'm able to look at the walls without feeling like I'm staring here. What do you think the best time is for people to come and do that, to sort of look at the walls? From Thanksgiving to January 1st, we're very busy. But generally speaking, lunchtime is a great time to come in, anytime during the day. And then the random nights. But, you know, people stop in the hallways. We have stuff going up and down the steps. People will look around and see what what was here. In the background, I don't know if listeners can hear it, but we are receiving beer. It's Bundy. And uh, we sell a lot of draft beer. And so we get our deliveries almost every day. I saw them using big ropes to lower them slowly into the basement. And those guys would have done the same thing for how many years is that same way that the beer comes in and gets hooked up to your taps. And it's really an art to lower it down. You were talking about new people. You have to train them in that. It's a risky job. Yep. Yep. <laughs> teamsters, uh, you know, the Teamsters, they're called Teamsters because they drove teams of horses. But these guys are uh, strong burly guys and it takes a lot of muscle to get that beer down there you don't serve guinness so i wanted you to tell me why and also how many times a day would you judge your bartenders answer that question of why they don't have guinness i don't even know how many times they <laughs> answer that question but i i hear it enough that i know that they get it they still get it <laughs> it originally started we were talking earlier about those big box uh, we call them big boxes because the those pubs were shipped in a box from ireland they are crafted in ireland from irish craftsmen but they're sent over here so about 15 or 20 years ago, I guess it's closer to 20 years, a bunch of Irish bar owners in Philadelphia protested to the Guinness Diageo, the English company that owns Guinness, about the fact that they were assisting individuals, usually wealthy individuals, to get into this business. They would help them with demographics and setting up the bar, the physical appearance of the bar, helping with hiring staff, providing them with music services, everything you would supposedly you need to run an Irish bar. And we didn't think it was right, and they, we didn't feel we were being heard in our protests, so we stopped serving Guinness. But it has a more relevant thing. There's a lot of Guinness now comes, is not made in Ireland, and we're an Irish bar, we're an Irish bar, but we're also an alehouse. So we want to support local producers of fine beers, ales, porters. So... Guinness is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. But can you go anywhere and get an O'Hara's from Ireland or an O'Reilly's out of suburban Philadelphia that's made by Sly Fox? 
So there's just a lot of reasons for that. I like how you make that into a positive. It's not, you have so much here that you can sell that you don't need to manufacture a false controversy or a false rivalry right. or a feud. There's a lot of that in media. And the hosts that I've liked the most that I've worked with have said, well, why would I start a fight with somebody else on my same station? Or why would I fake that just to have a media feud or get some coverage or that kind of silliness? And you have so much here to sell. Why do that? You have a legitimate reason. You decided not only to stop serving the Guinness, but also it became such a positive. And now you serve more Stout's Draft than any other tavern in Philadelphia. Is that right? The Stout, yeah, Stout's is a, a great craft brewer in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, in Lancaster County. Great place to stop if you're ever in this area and you want to see where the beer is made. They do great tours. They make three of our beers. We have an IPA, but it's American-style IPA. And then we have, it's called 1860 it's available not just here, but a lot of local beer distributors also sell it. And then we have two other beers, an English-style ale, a McGillan's Real Ale, and it's somewhat similar to Bass Ale. So when people are looking for bass, we say, well, try our ale. And then we also have a German-style lager, and that's our Stout's Genuine Lager. And they say the 1860 IPA is historically accurate. Is that right, or what's the flavor like? It's not 100% historic because we're not sure... There's not a lot of recipes that have been left to us. Prohibition, again, I have to remember that your audience is historically minded. Prohibition, they wanted to eliminate brewing and distilling. And one of the ways to eliminate brewing was you kill the hops industry. So the federal government was successful in, in knocking it out. So we're not real sure what those hops would have tasted like in 1860. But we did have a panel of local beer experts and come up with this recipe and we tweaked it a couple times, and uh, we like what we're selling. I can't say to you it's exactly what you would have gotten in 1860. But you try. Yeah. You can be sure it's not a mass-produced, bland beer. It has a lot of flavor. And by my math, you just had something north of your 8,000th weekend open. And I'd mentioned before about your local sports teams. And I wanted you to just describe what it's like when the puck drops or when it's kickoff time. What's it feel like? Here? Well, you know, depending upon the intensity of the game, you know, it can be pretty electric in here. I referred earlier to Temple playing. And this past weekend, it was just a great day for sports. Uh, and there was a lot of excitement in here. Uh, Eagles nights is great and days are great. Philadelphians are noted as fanatical sports fans. I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to you New York New Yorkers about the Mets loss I mean I'm not really sorry but I feel that I'm compelled to say yeah. <laughs> I mean, next year as they say that that's uh, usually the, next year yeah they're usually the rallying cry I'm sure with the Eagles you can relate to that so yeah. and speaking of that tough reputation by the way Mama Gillen's going back into the original history of the place she had a tough reputation as well Pa dies in 1901, and she keeps on running this place until she passes away at 90 in 1937. Now, you mentioned Prohibition, which falls right in there. How did she deal with Prohibition? To put it into historical perspective, she took over this bar when women didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have the right in a lot of states to have a divorce or to uh, own real estate in some or, or run businesses. And she managed to do that in what was definitely in those days a male-dominated business. She was a tough woman, wasn't afraid to um, keep people out that she felt were undesirable. But what she did during Prohibition is, she first of all, she locked the front doors. She didn't go out of business. She kept the back door open and the side door open. And 
brought in a chef and converted the place from a straight-ahead bar to a restaurant, and that's how she survived. Again, don't forget, for your history buff people, everybody thought Prohibition was so outrageous with last months, definitely not years, and definitely not more than a decade. So she thought it would be a temporary bump in the road, but she managed to survive the whole ordeal. Yeah, it was a dark time for somebody who liked <laughs> somebody who liked their pint. Don Miller, author of Supreme City about Jazz Age Manhattan, who I interviewed, he said that the mayor of New York City at the time, Jimmy Walker, told the federal government, you can bring in the Army and Navy of the United States to impose prohibition here in New York City, but you won't be able to make it stick. And it wasn't a threat. It was just a realistic mention. And they fought, really, to get the... New York State authorities freed from having to enforce prohibition because he said it was it was be impossible. It's too much of the culture, and I take it that's very much a part of Philadelphia culture too since the founding days. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And this is also centrally located for a lot of that founding history too. I came here, I dropped off my equipment, and then I walked with my wife down to the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, and then walked right back. You can have a nice history walk here to put this on the map sort of when you hop over there. It's perfect. Right. A lot of the roots of the uh, corn, they found that they could produce alcohol and transport it across the roads of Pennsylvania and the Cumberland Trail and other places eastward. And Philadelphia had a great distilling and brewing tradition. Uh, There were dozens of breweries in the city of Philadelphia and quite a few distilleries as well. My guest is Chris Mullen Sr., owner and proprietor of McGillan's Old Ale House, Philadelphia's oldest bar, again, the fifth oldest in the United States. Check out McGillans.com and follow this unique historic tavern at McGillans on Twitter, which incidentally is where I found your wonderful PR person, Irene. She was really fantastic about setting this up, and I appreciate her doing so. Also, Facebook.com slash McGillans. In 2008, Gourmet Magazine named this fantastic bar one of the 14 coolest in the United States, and it made Nightclub and Bar Magazine's top 100 in back-to-back years. Chris, you've managed to preserve an authentic 19th century tavern in the heart of a major city while also using it as a venue for modern events. You have karaoke every Wednesday and Sunday, but there must be times when the past and present come into conflict. So tell us about some of those battles for historic preservation. For instance, you were just telling me about what was on this wall here to our right by the gimbal sign if you're coming in. Yeah, well, there, there was actually a mirror there in the 70s. They had live bands in here, and it was a time of disco music, so they actually had a mirrored wall in the back of this room, which we took off uh, shortly after taking over. And lo and behold, there was a lot of old sheet music that had been there from God knows when. There was a disco ball above my head, so we took that down. Although we did put it back when uh, Mamma Mia was in town. We put a disco ball in here. (laughs) The cast from Mamma Mia came in here and had quite a good time. But things like that are kind of interesting. Yeah, it's okay if it's for a special occasion, but I can't imagine this all mirrored. And you said the windows in the back were broken, so they just covered Covered those over? Yeah, Yeah. with wood rather than replace them. And uh, we've since put in the the stained glass, which is above in the arched uh, windows, and the front behind me, all those windows were all covered with curtains and uh, old old liquor signs and beer signs. And we just uncovered all that, let the light in, so to speak. And you do get a lot of light considering that it's an alley. As yeah. I said, it really is a welcoming place. And I personally don't like to go in a restaurant where I can't see inside first. It might be a wonderful place inside, but it's part of the idea of being in a strange city. If you're a person coming and looking for a place that's sort of an oasis, you just want to sit, get your bearings. Here, all the windows, you see the tables, you see the bar, everything's 
brightly lit, but you still have the precious dank, as Mo would say on The Simpsons. But it's really a welcoming atmosphere. And it amazes me that you did this, this restoration while you were still open and operating. Yes. And they, when we took over, the bar was not open on Sundays. So some of the heavy uh, work would have been done on a Sunday or early morning or overnight. But we never closed one day for uh, any of the restoration work. We've never closed. We even stayed open during Hurricane Sandy. We've never closed during a major blizzard. And people appreciate that. It's, but, you know, when you're cloistered and you're locked into yeah. the center of town, <laughs> they love the fact that you have a watering hole that you can get to. The bar is the third place, they say. It's not home. It's not work. But it's a place you can go and feel comfortable and feel like you belong and sort of slouch a little. And yes. Enjoy yourself over a pint. And many pints you do have. You also have a sampler, don't you? Yes, six beers primarily, uh, and they're all local. Five of them are mainstay local beers. The Stouts beers are house beers. Flying Fish, which is a New Jersey beer, but a neighbor. We consider ourselves, like people in Manhattan say, it's a tri-state area. We're a tri-state area, Delaware and New Jersey and Philadelphia. So we have beer from there. And then uh, Yards, which is one of the older local craft brewers. And I hope that people who maybe aren't into beer or don't go to bars a lot will realize just how important beer was not just to history in general, but to the founding of the American Republic. And you have Yingling, of course, a great Philadelphia beer, I guess America's oldest, isn't it? So this really does matter to be able to come to a place. I certainly love it and sit and say, this is the experience that somebody like Philadelphia and Benjamin Franklin would have had. You really put a lot of work into the menu and the beer items to make it a full historic experience. Right. Um, I'd like to interject that the two largest American-owned breweries in the country are Yingling and Sam Adams, and they both have very huge presence here in Philadelphia. Yingling, of course, was founded and continues to operate here. Sam Adams bought an old Stroh's Brewery up in the Allentown region, and they brew a lot of their beer up there. So the two largest American-owned beer breweries have a big Pennsylvania presence. We talked about the building itself expanding and changing over time. 1860 to 2015 sounds like such a long time, and it is. But the restaurant has to stay in compliance with, of course, our modern laws and also our modern sensibilities about the environment and efficiency. And as you said, letting the light in without heating the place up. You have some spinning ceiling fans. How did you manage to bring all that together? Because it's an amazing balance that I see as somebody coming in and taking everything at once as a single picture. How do you balance all of that? I'm speechless. I don't know. <laughs> when you ask the question, it's like, oh my gosh, how do we? But no, it's, first of all, we, we love doing it. It's every day I'm 68. People say, why don't you retire? I'm like, why would I retire? I'm having more fun right now than I ever have, especially since my son came on board, has really helped to give us more energy. First of all, we consider ourselves the greenest bar in America because we compost and recycle 90% of the trash here in this building. So 90% either goes to a composter or to recycling. So less than 10% ends up in a landfill. So that's our latest green initiatives. Your listeners have probably heard the sounds of trucks in the background and beer coming in and beer empties going out. That in itself is a great recycling thing. Every one of those kegs of beer has the equivalent of seven cases of beer inside them. So therefore, that's seven less cases that end up in a landfill or well, we recycle, so they would go to recycling, but still, it's, that's a labor-intensive process. So you're saying that by drinking beer at McGillan's, we're helping to save the earth. That's, that, 
yes, I would definitely say that. And you also alluded to the fact that there was a lot of breweries in colonial times. And safe water, remember, London was devastated by plagues, etc. So brewing would create a safe, wholesome product. It had lots of uh, nutritions, and it was part of a lot of workers' daily rations. It was a good way to sustain life, really. So it was clean liquid for the body and good carbs to keep the body running as well. Hey, you'd have to have something fermented because you just didn't trust the water. <laughs> Absolutely. You couldn't trust it. You'd literally Absolutely. be taking your life in your hands. We interviewed the author of Dr. Mooder's Marvels about Philadelphia. And whenever I look, whether it's colonial times or it was the capital of the United States, you'd have the yellow fever season. Imagine having a plague, a season, and saying it's going to sweep through town and it's going to kill however many thousands of people that'll just be it yeah. that'll just be that time of year waiting to get it and have it take you out that wasn't water related but still it was a terrible thing to happen and that's one way you could really protect yourself at least from the waterborne diseases was you'd need to drink beer so it was much better and that's one of the ways winston churchill started drinking whiskey when you went up to places in the world today certainly still don't have great water sanitation his such place was the north of india and he would put a little bit of whiskey in the water, and that was the way you got rid of some of those parasites. So, so he says. Yeah. <laughs> well, he would put it in once a day, they say. He would drink that and just let it sit there, his daughter said, all day. So I wanted to ask also, what other places do you think people should visit historically around here? We talked about the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, but if people are going to make this the centerpiece of their tour of historic Philadelphia, where else to go? Well, right around the corner is our city hall, which is right dead center in the middle of town, and they do have tours there. Across the street from that is the Masonic Temple, which is a huge and beautiful building, very historic. And we talked about water. If you go to the waterworks right behind the, the art museum, it's a great place to see history in the making, too, that that was one of the first water-cleansing facilities and it was in the middle of a park they realized at that point in time they need to have a source of good clean water so that's also great to see and of course right in front of the art museum is our famous rocky statue did you ever have stallone in here no we've never had a slide <laughs> all right we got to tell him then next time we see him got to stop in seems like a perfect place for a guy like him he can hang out and enjoy himself maybe get some writing done or reading I wanted to ask you when the best time is for that. You often have people come and maybe read a book, I would say, in here. So if you want to read about James Buchanan, say, who's Pennsylvania's only president, relatively local boy, what's a good time when you when you have the table space? Daytime. Yeah, definitely. Your older listeners, if they come in here later in the evening, it is the more deterred they'll be by the crowds and the noise. Like Saturday, some, I had someone complaining to me about how crowded and noisy it was. And I said, you know, just like Yogi Berra said, nobody's coming here anymore because we're too busy. <laughs> so you got to pick your spaces. You're not going to read a book many days. A Monday day is great, you know, but you pick your times. And again, you're very active on social media. So I'm sure if someone wants to shoot a tweet to you at McGillan's on Twitter that you're always answering. I see you do a lot of interaction on there. So that, that's great for people who do want to figure out when the best time is to visit. Okay, even McGillan's has a last call, so I have my last question. And I wanted to ask, what's the one piece of history or several pieces, you have so many, that you really hope people come and reflect on when they visit McGillan's? I, I, that's another, you've got me speechless once again. I, I mean, if, if you look down at the floor, it was one of the first floors in a bar that's ceramic because McGillan got tired of replacing his wooden floors from the men's boots, the signs, the, the liquor licenses. I, I think... I don't think you focus on any one thing. And then again, we decorate today. 
you're picking a day where we took all our Halloween decorations down yesterday, and we've already started putting up the Christmas decorations. It's the second of November, so uh, you know this is a great time to see the historic stuff. Also, I forgot you asked me famous people, and then I looked over your head, and there is Bobby Picardo, the doctor. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. Yeah, yeah Star Trek, Rob yeah, Voyager. Yeah. So that's another famous entertainment figure. So a lot of times these things elude me. So You see a lot of things where I bet you walk by them every day and don't even notice them. And the floor is something you walk on that you don't notice. And I'm glad you brought it up because if people walked in here, they might not even notice. It looks very general, but I did read that. I really like the fact you're able to always embrace the technology Paul McGillan put in the first central heating system, didn't he, for example? Yes, like, yes. he was actually died right in the spot in the basement where he was doing it, doing that work himself. He was helping or doing it. To also answer your question, the front of the bar is very historic, too. I always appreciate it. I, I thought it was a really cool front. It's unlike anything you see in America usually, and that's because McGillan brought his cousin over, it would have been Ma, from England to design the, this bar. And if you look at it, it's very neoclassical. There's columns, the palladium windows, the brickwork. It's more similar to anything you're going to see in older cities like, I'm going to say Bath, but Bath, England, or some of the older towns and cities. It's a bar that looks more like those buildings than anything you see in Ireland, even though we're Irish. But that's, I think, pretty remarkable, too. And people love that. It's, the neon sign is you know, another thing. People love to take the picture of that. And we have a, half a dozen great photos that people have taken and sent to us in front of the bar at night. Well, Christopher Mullen Sr., thank you so much for inviting me into this great American tavern in historic Philadelphia. I am now finally going to wet my whistle because all this talking, I don't know, it's just a little bit little bit dry so i'm gonna go over to the bar and enjoy one of your fantastic ales thank you again so very much thanks dean i appreciate it thank you for coming to visit us and hope your listeners come in and take a peek well they could do a lot worse and not much better than coming in <laughs> well i'm back where i belong in new york city far from Drury street and 1860 but it's good to know that mcgillin's is always there whenever we need a taste of the past you can check out McGillins.com and follow this unique historic tavern at McGillins on Twitter or at Facebook.com slash McGillins. And if you'd like to sign up for McGillins newsletter, shoot an email to McGillins at AOL.com. By the way, they also have Wi-Fi. When you pick up your smartphone, you'll see it. It says, Free Beer McGillins. Chris also wanted me to mention Wanamakers, the first department store in the world, which occupied a full city block near McGillins. The founder, a future postmaster general, started the idea of fixed pricing, no haggling over things. And he had many other innovations we take for granted today. If you have a musical mind, you can look into the Friends of the Wanamaker Organ to learn about this unique historic landmark. A massive organ built for the 1904 World's Fair, which you may have seen memorialized in the Judy Garland film, Meet Me in St. Louis. And since we're talking about food and history, a special thank you to Devon Seafood Grill. My wife and I stopped in there for our anniversary dinner. Our waiter, Caesar, treated us with some of that brotherly love that you get from the folks at McGillan's. And their website provided us with a coupon to boot. Great fish, great price, and great service. And half-price bottles of wine every Sunday. I'm sorry, you'll just have to forgive a Greek person if we tend to gush over all those things when we visit a restaurant. It's everything we want. Anyway, I hope you'll join us next week for another Leap into the Past here on iArt Radio. 
No book this week, but we do hope you'll click through that Amazon banner at historyauthor.com. I'm not going to say who, but someone on the staff has run up a pretty healthy bar tab. Not all taverns, it seems, are as friendly on the wallet as McGillan's. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. So, until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening. And happy reading. And eating. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears 